need an Advil, maybe a second chance. Hey! Welcome to Stargate Second Chances, a walking through the Stargate podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Brent. And this is episode 10, where we'll be talking about the season one episode, The Torment of Tantalus. We've done this 10 times. We've done a second chances 10 times. We have done 10 second chances. That's, this, that's yes. we we've made a lot of audio content over the years. <laughs> yes, we have. Uh, uh, let me think here. So we've done 150 plus episodes of the main podcast. Each yep. episode probably averages at a 90 minutes. So that's 100 uh, that's... 225 hours of audio wow. there. Um plus all of the bonus stuff. Yep. We've done a lot so, of audio. That's a lot of audio. I feel um, sorry for the for the listeners who are literally just starting. Although some know, people they just bla- man they love it they just they just they just did one after the other they just they mainline it and you know there there have been several podcasts where where I did that where I just binged it right and yeah. I would just listen to it all the time when I'm driving when I'm you know whatever and yep. then when I finally catch up I'm like oh well now what do I do <laughs> <laughs> you mean I have to wait yes yes you have to wait yes yes you do you <laughs> do um. So uh, I do want to give a special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters yes. uh, for supporting the podcast, for, for, for supporting this project. Uh, it is greatly appreciated. Thank you very much. That um, makes this uh, possible. It, it, we wouldn't be doing this if it weren't for you and for what you can do for uh, uh, what mm-hmm. you are doing for us. Yes. Uh, special thanks also for those of you specifically who voted for The Torment of Tantalus. Uh, yeah. This one is for you. Yes, that's right. Enjoy. Enjoy. Uh, Brent, the director for this episode, which was uh, like episode 11 of the first season, so it's relatively yeah. early in it, yes. was Jonathan Glasner, one of the co-creators of the show. Uh, he only directed two things in this series, and this is the first of those two things. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, the teleplay is by Robert Cooper. Mm-hmm. This is one of Robert Cooper's first teleplays. I can't mm-hmm. remember if it is actually his first or not. Uh, the original air date for The Torment of Tantalus was October 3, 1997. Mm-hmm. Um, and the IMDb rating for this episode is 8.2. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And we reviewed this episode, uh, obviously early on, on November 22nd, 2018. Holy cow! That's almost four years ago now. I know! Wow! I know. Wow. Okay. Um, uh, and just to, so Julie listens to our original podcast and she's the one that puts together our little uh, comments that we'll get to what we talked about the, the first time around, right? Yeah. So we'll mm-hmm. get to that later. Uh, she does that so that I don't have to. Yes. Uh, which is appreciated. Very um, much so. Thank you, and, Julie. And she said that this was so early in the process that we had a much more... Uh, give and take conversational quality where where it wasn't you talk and then I talk and then we kind of banter back and forth. It was, uh, you know, just like everything all at once. Just so so she was trying to parse out what it was that oh. she, I was saying and what you were saying in yes. the midst of all this. Yes. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, we definitely have a bit of a of a of a structure. Yeah. That we've evolved into, and I think I think it works well. Um, but uh, yeah, thank you, Julie. Thanks for dealing with uh, thanks for dealing with the mashed potatoes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it just 
Oh, she also noted that the audio quality was not so good in that early uh, episode. Yeah, no, um, I mean, I'm, I'm uh, pretty uh, proud of what we've got going on now, but yeah, I, yep. can, I can appreciate that it wasn't yep. that good then. Yep. Uh, so, with all of that, Brent, yeah. uh, tell me what Torment of Tantalus was all about. Yeah. So, this is the one where the Stargate was first used way back when Franklin Roosevelt was still president in 1945. That's a long and time ago. That's a long time ago. And Ernest Littlefield was the brave... Littlefield? Was that right? Littlefield. Okay. He was the brave scientist who went through the event horizon only to be like cut off and presumed lost. And we have this wonderful archival footage, which is which is edited and stylized. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You get a cut to somebody holding up severed cables and looking back like, what? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm going to ignore that. Anyway, um, maybe there, were, there maybe there was more than one film person. Anyway, uh, so we get to see Catherine Langford again. That's good. Yay. And we learned that she and Ernest were engaged. Ooh. And she is astonished to learn that Ernest might still be alive somewhere and that we can go Get him. Yes. We go to a strange world where the gate is in a castle and about to fall into an ocean, which is a convenient countdown clock right there. Yes. Boy, did they arrive at exactly the right time. And Ernest has a few wonderfully touching moments. Uh, Michael Shanks is really channeling James Spader like hard in this. That was literally one of my comments. Yes. Yes. And Teal'c's attitude, he was still in that I frown all the time phase of the the character. Like, he's just scowling, like, every chance he gets to scowl. Well, and even when and Catherine calls him on it, too. He yes. talks. Yes. Well, if it's necessary. If, if deemed absolutely necessary. Uh, but most importantly, we learned that this was uh, Heliopolis, right? The gathering place of knowledge. And though... Ra was invoked pretty emphatically at one point. It doesn't really seem to matter that much because there are four other languages on the wall, none of them hieroglyphics. Crucially, we see the runes of the Asgard, but who are the others? So, no time to find out, however, unfortunately. The castle begins to crumble. Power is stolen from a cloud. The gate is dialed manually, and our heroes barely make it home. But that includes Daniel, who thankfully chose to live with his friends, absent the knowledge from that castle, rather than by himself, or not at all, with all the knowledge, but nowhere to share it. In- so, that's the basic, that, that's the story that we watched. The end. Yep. So, what'd you think after yeah. watching this one again? Um, I, I, I liked it. I liked it. Uh, the, the, that sort of hesitation is that, it still felt like it was early days of Stargate for sure. Um, right. Uh, Michael Shanks was trying to be James Bader. Uh, Richard Dean Anderson was trying to be Richard Dean Anderson. <laughs> <laughs> he was, he was like, okay, I'm going to do my thing now. And uh, so, so seeing that briefing room moment where uh, Jackson is watching the videotape, the, the VHS transfer of this, of this uh, experiment. Mm-hmm. Uh, was kind of jarring in a way, right? Because by now, right, we've just finished season seven. Michael Shanks is the person that we see now. It's much less James Spader. It's much more Michael Shanks. And um, 
uh, and the rapport between Shanks and Anderson in the characters of Jackson and O'Neill. I mean, it's very, very, very well established. Here in this episode, it's still way early days. They're still doing their thing. They're still trying to figure out where they need to go with it. Uh, I'm recalling that one of the things I did not like about those first couple of seasons was this weird whiplash aspect that happened with Daniel Jackson, because this is an episode where he's just an inquisitive learner of all things. He's not singularly motivated by finding Sharae, though that's on paper what he is singularly motivated for doing. Right. Um, He is genuinely just curious about what happened. He's genuinely interested in trying to rescue uh, a a scientist who went through, or yeah, he learns his assigned, who goes through the gate. Um, He's genuinely interested in delving deep, deep, deep into this reservoir of knowledge that he discovers that, well, that, that Ernest rediscovers, right? You know, that thing. Um, He's a scientist. He is an inquisitive individual. He is a person who hungers to know more, even to the point of willing to risk his life to know it, which is fun. And I love that part of, of Dr. Jackson, like through and through. Yep. But it never seemed to line up with the person who said, I'll join your program for one purpose only to find Charay. Like it never seemed to line up. And so I'm reminded of that again here. Like here's the spot where I get to see the Daniel Jackson part character part that I really enjoy watching, but it isn't the one that seems to be singularly motivated by finding Charay. So, mm, all right, but here we are. The issue there is not with the curiosity of Daniel Jackson, but with the, explanation that he's singularly focused on Sharae. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, the issue is not here, but there. That Correct. And I am reminded of that gear grinder. That's yep. what I'm kind of driving at. Sure. Um, <clears throat> so, yeah. So, we have ourselves a pretty fun story. Um, I, uh, I, I can't remember in canon uh, if we learn about who those f- four races were in the fifth race. I think is that so. where we learn it? I'm pretty sure that that's when we learn their names. And that was in the second season, right? Uh, I believe so, without looking right. it up. And so, oh, but they did have seasons one and two, like, penned in ink or something, right? Like, they started SG-1, and they knew that they were going to be telling more than just 20-something stories. They were going to tell 40-something yes. stories. Yeah. yeah. Got it. So, it's it's highly possible and, and or likely that this is the introduction to that idea, which they were going to explore later, and they knew they were going to explore later. Um, I guess I didn't quite remember right that in this episode, we are told nothing of the Ancients or the Fernlings or the Knox. Um, had we met the Knox by that point, though? I think uh, we did. Yes, I believe we did. But we didn't. But but in this episode, there was absolutely no connection that the knocks that we met were also present in this particular room sharing knowledge. Right. I forgot that. I had remembered that in the context of the rest of the story. But when we're watching this one again, I'm like, right, this is where we discover the ancients. It's like, no, this is not. Um, yes, this is where we first are introduced to them. But we are not told who they are or why they are important. And we're not even we're, given the name ancients yet. Correct. We are told that it does seem to imply that the uh, that the uh, Gua'uld didn't make the Stargates. Yes. Uh, and that there are worlds to explore beyond what were on the cartouches on Abydos. These are all good things. 
Uh, it does kind of ask a weird question of if it's so dang close to Abydos and we're so gifted at traveling at hyperspeed, even though we would re prefer to travel by the gate because the gate is way faster than traveling faster than the speed of light. Um, if it's next to Abydos, why would you, would you, would you have, you mean, you, you might've found it or I don't know. It just kind of felt a little bit weird, not weird in the form of season one, but weird after seven seasons like that. I'm not sure that stands up quite so well anymore. A little like how in season one of Stargate, the next generation, how the Ferengi are like almost just barely above animals and they turn right. into very well-developed characters that are interesting and you know like by the time we get ds9 like it's 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 much better brent but, i would like to point out that you just said stargate the next generation thank you i uh now uh, in my house i am uh now known as the person that watches all the stars yes and uh i get them all mixed up pretty regularly the names yep. not the yeah. not the stories but uh Anywho, yep. Star Trek The Next Generation has Ferengis <laughs> that are barely above animals in season one, and then they're much cooler later on. Yeah, season one, like, explanation as to why this particular planet had never been visited by the ghoul doesn't seem to line up with the ghoul world of later seasons, but that's okay. We're gonna, I'm gonna let it go. Um, Ernest, the guy who plays Ernest was delightful. Absolutely mm -hmm. delightful. There were so many little moments. There was one moment that was a little bit played up for laughs and it didn't really seem to go anywhere. And it makes me think it might have been a piece of story that ended up on the cutting room floor. It was mentioned that, you know, he thought Catherine was with him. And then it was, I think, mentioned that Catherine went away. And that's why he went harumph and stormed off. But it wasn't really explained very well. It certainly wasn't fleshed out very well. Hmm. Yeah. And... It's. I was expecting there to be a bit more about that, especially with the hue with 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 how, when introduced to old Ernest, how how instantly we were moved with his, um, with his 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 joy intermingled with grief. Yeah, uh, like it was it was it was so well communicated from an actor who could clearly communicate that very complex emotion. Um, even though all it was, was just him kind of going around giving people hugs without wearing any clothes, <laughs> even though, <laughs> even though Carter did a great job of playing the camera. Okay. And off, off screen, she goes like, Oh, <laughs> that oh, was great. Okay. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like that was, that was great. That, I mean, so it was, it, this was a moment that was obviously intended to be both funny and touching at the exact same time. Yep. And his harumph and storming off was a funny moment in a touching moment that clearly told us a whole, like what was that about? He hasn't seen her in 50 years and he goes harumph and storms off. And even Catherine goes, well, that was unexpected. I can't remember how she phrased it, but like, like, you know, it was like, what's that? And it was alluded to later, but never really explained later. So that's, a, that was a moment of like, huh? Okay. And we have the introduction to the four races. We have the MacGuffin problem of the castle about to fall into the sea. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, the power crystal not being able to charge the thing. How do we get the thing? Lightning strike and then use the helmet. No, 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 no. I mean, there was, there was, there was, there was definitely some sci-fi episodic television storytelling that was happening, and it worked. Dot, dot, dot. But it wasn't really compelling. It just did. It did what it was supposed to do. And we had the, you know, the collapse of the entire place, which seemed, as I'm looking back on it, it's so tropey. I mean, like 
late 90s, early 2000s, everybody got really good at hucking styrofoam blocks onto sets because everything seemed to be falling apart all the time. <laughs> and uh, our heroes dive through the event horizon and over on the other side they go and then everybody gives each other hugs at the end and it's it's heartwarming. And it, it was nice. I liked it. It was it was fun. Um, you know, I'm not when we get to the Chevron ratings, I'm not exactly sure how many I'm going to give it. But, you know, I enjoyed watching it. So what about you? Yeah. How about this time around. So um, I still like this episode. This is a great episode. It's it's an episode that has great characters. Yes, it's early Stargate. Yeah. And you see that in some of the things uh, I did notice that, especially when. Uh, Shanks was meeting Catherine again for the first time. Mm-hmm. And, and, I mean, like, holy smokes, is he pulling out James Spader left and right? Mm-hmm. That, that that softens as the rest of the episode continues. Yes. Um, but in that moment, I'm like, oh, my goodness. That's his yep. James Spader, um, yep. uh, which is fine. Um, you know, the uh, you, you touched on all of the kind of the spots uh, it is a it's a good story that that tells uh, you know the it does so many things and it interweaves them in a way that that, yes. that is actually pleasing. Yes, uh, and with so many things adding into it, you'd think it would be very easy for the whole thing to fall apart, mm-hmm. and it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Right. So I mean, at its basic level, one layer you have. Uh, SG-1 going to a planet and realizing that they can't get home and they need to find a new way to charge the gate so they can get home. Mm -hmm. You've got that layer going on there. They go to this new planet and they discover meaning of life stuff, right? These four ancient races that have come together that that communicated and created a vast intergalactic conglomeration of stuff. Right, mm-hmm. and and now we have some connection to that. Uh, that's a layer. Uh, it is very tropey trope of the late '90s, early 2000s, where they're like, "Here is everything that you want to know about everything." Oh, and yeah. by the way, you can't actually save it. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Ooh, oh, the plight of humanity to wish to know more and never being able to. Ouch. Yeah, uh, they, they actually do that same type of trope much better when we get the uh, ancient repository of knowledge Yeah, uh, a couple of times where it's all downloaded into his head. It comes to him, but it's also killing him. That trope actually does that much better yes. than this. Yes, yes. Um, uh, but it's also early Stargate. It's the late 90s, yada, yada. Um, you know, and then you've got the whole layer of the gate was turned on in 1945 and Ernest Littlefield is missing and yeah. Ernest was engaged to Catherine and we all love Catherine and Catherine gets to meet him again and all of that stuff. And all of these have very disparate uh, reasons and di- disparate uh, purposes and directions. And yet this is an episode that takes all these things and really weaves it together into a story that works and uh, is still compelling 25 years later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which I think is awesome. Uh, there are some inconsistencies. You mentioned one of them. Uh, it's clear that... So, like, when we were in 1945, we had lots of different shots from the camera crew getting the whole milieu of this, and then they took all of those and turned them into the camera footage that Daniel Jackson was watching. Mm-hmm. And, yep. you know, if even if you had two different cameras, which you would not have had more than two different cameras in 1945 filming this, Probably uh, you would not have gotten 
all that they got. Um, but for me, I'm willing to overlook that because it's a relatively small part at the beginning, uh, and it sets the stage, and it, it it allows for all of his other things to happen, which are cool. Yes. Um, you know, the fact that apparently in their packs they carry, I think I mentioned this uh, when we watched this episode four years ago, uh, apparently standard in their backpack is, you know, uh, 300 feet of... Yes, of electrical <laughs> cable. Electrical. Although they did, I did notice that they had two MELPs there. They had a, a survey MELP <clears throat> to, off to one side, and then they had their pu- their pack mule uh, off to the right. So they could have had 300 feet of cable in the pack mule. Uh, sure, sure. Um, but, but the fact that that's just like apparently standard uh in that yep. um is is fascinating um i i i appreciate using ernest's old helmet as the conductor yes. and the lightning rod that's just kind of you know neat and clever mm-hmm. uh, i'm sure glad that tilt didn't get uh zapped from a, a lightning while he was up there setting all of this stuff up right no kidding <laughs> um that you would know, be for uh, uh you know thanks tilt, would- for uh your 11 episodes uh Got to find a new alien. Yeah. <laughs> that would have changed the story quite dramatically. Oh, yes. Um, you know, Michael Shanks and, and uh, or, you know, Daniel Jackson's curiosity uh, and and allure of this, uh, you know, that, that torment of Tantalus thing, you know, yep. seeing uh, something that could just be exactly what you were hoping for, um, which actually fits an archaeologist, at least in my head of an archaeologist, of wanting to find the grail, right? Wanting to find the thing yeah. that answers the question, whatever that question is. Yep. Uh, and, and it might be a simple question, and it might be a simple little thing. In this case, it's a big question, and it's a not simple little thing. But, uh, you know, that, that kind of curiosity and that, that desire for it. Uh, and then the tension between uh, him and O'Neill about, you know, do we save this? Do we blow it up because we need it to get home? Um it wasn't long. It didn't, you know, and they, they shot it once and it didn't work. And like, well, okay, um, let's just move on, which which is fine, you know. But I, mm-hmm. I appreciated all of that tension in there. Um, and then getting introduced to the Asgard, the Nox, the Ancients, the Furlings, without being introduced to them specifically. Yep. Yep. Uh, it was just delightful. Uh, and I have no idea if they had those specifically in play for that. Obviously, the Asgard. Uh, but the rest of them... Who knows? Um, but they developed this as a, you know, something that they could build off of, and they do. And mm-hmm. so this is the place where you can look back, uh, like I do, and say this is where, uh, this is where they sprang off from. Right? This is the springboard that that shot yep. them into all of these other stories, which is exciting. I like this episode. It's a good one. Yeah. You mentioned something that I thought I I I I find it very. It's not really related to this episode. Well, maybe, um, I find it really curious. <clears throat> you were mentioning that uh, Daniel's curiosity is something that, at least in your mind, so fits a an archaeologist trying to find the thing, the answer to a question. And the only reason why it stuck out so interestingly to me is because I have I'm a I, I, I'm an arm. I'm a historian, but I'm also an armchair like uh, archaeological observer is probably the right way to say it. I don't go digging at all, but I love uh, learning about archaeology digs, especially because of the historian aspect 
right? It's actual evidence in the ground of things that you have just read about. Um, so there's a whole lot of really great like aspects of enjoyment that I get out of that stuff. But as a result, I also uh, like pop archaeology. So there's this British archaeology show that probably many people are aware of. It's called Time Team. They had a uh, 20 episodes that started in the early 90s and uh even so successful as there's now a patreon version of the thing which uh they yeah have their youtube channel and they've released a couple of episodes recently or a couple of digs recently and i'm a patron um but anyway uh what they commonly will say when talking about a particular dig is that they talk about what the story of the place is and they'll phrase it like the story this place is telling us is this right they're digging in the ground and they thought they were going in this direction and the evidence kind of points them in a different direction. And so they are approaching it going, well, the story this place is telling us is da 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 And it's been a shift in academia that I have noticed where once upon a time recently, but a little bit, a little bit ago now, we would approach these questions trying to find the answer to something, trying to find the answer to a question. Why did uh, Harold Godwinson lose to William Duke of Normandy at the Battle of Hastings rather sure, than, yeah. which is a terrible example because we've never actually found the battle site. We know where it is. It's over there, but we just don't know where it is specifically. Um, rather than unearthing the evidence and having this, you know, and being like, okay, what's what's the story here? Um, you know, that even includes historical documents, right? So we would go, early historians would go and they'd ask the question, why did Rome fall? And then they would go through documents to try to find the answer of why did Rome fall rather than going through documents to have the story be told to them. And that's been a shift. We've been shifting that that sort of idea of how about we just gather evidence and start putting it together and then listen to the story that it's telling us. And so, but to your point, Zach, yeah, I am seeing a piece of uh, a moment here where Daniel Jackson is the... uh, uh, archetyped intellectual who is hoping for an answer to a thing happens to be the answer to everything (laughs) (laughs) as it happens um which does kind of make me curious like i guess at the time i was totally willing to accept that this repository was going to be the answer to life the universe and everything but on rewatch it's like there's nothing about this moment that tells us that this is going to tell us that at all there's 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 the work that Ernest did mm-hmm. where he's he's uncovered information. He says, this place is Heliopolis. This is this is the place. And then Daniel's the one that kind of brings it together. It's the spot where all our all knowledge is 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 put together. And it's I'm not trying to blow a hole in the story because that's clearly what they're trying to set the thing up to be, right? These four races that gather together. Later we learn that these four races were collaborating in ways it was there that it was happening. You know, it's fine. In the meta story, it's great. Um but in the watching this time, I'm realizing, oh, man, I've got all this meta information that I've had over the many seasons now that I am pushing into this episode that wasn't told in this episode. Mm-hmm. And it all works. It all works. That's why it's enjoyable, because it works. But in no way did this episode say that. Like, we have Daniel staring up going, this is everything. And I believed him. But other than him saying this is everything there was nothing about that that said you're going to find everything rather than no what you're literally looking at is a bread recipe because they used all that to make bread or something like (laughs) 
Like this is well, how they communicated how to make bread. Yeah, there is something actually in this moment where where Daniel does make an assumption mm-hmm. uh, that this is meaning of life stuff, um, and I think um, I mean I suspect that most of it was written there was yeah. the same type of things that we would get when uh, the Congress or when you have a summit, you know, the G7 summit comes up and, and you have somebody writing notes and talking about all that's going on. Uh, that's probably what a lot of this was, mm-hmm. which was would be not exciting to read. Um, and so on some level, he is projecting more on this than what is probably actually there yes on the flip side yes on the flip side though um when you have four completely distinct races from possibly different galaxies yeah coming together and finding a way to communicate at all now you get into the meta reality that they are using some sort of linguistic form that is based on uh, using atomistic processes and mm-hmm. things as a linguistic uh, la- as language or as yeah. an alphabet of some sort. Yeah. That type of stuff now on the meta scale of things all of a sudden really does become some meaning of life stuff. What does it mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what does yeah. it mean when you have four distinct races that are at least uh, at least on some level intergalactic because we already know that the Asgard are part of this and the Asgard are not native to our galaxy. So this is an intergalactic thing and life apparently uses uh, a something, some sort of similar model to depict the develop- what atoms are and how they look. Yep. Which is impressive. And they use that to create a language. What does it mean for life in the universe? What does it mean for the universe that these things seem to be universal things? That is definitely meaning of life stuff. So the content may be boring and may not actually be near as exciting as it is. But the fact that the content exists. Yeah. And is being recorded. Yeah, does become the thing, uh, and so this is where uh, you know I I don't consider myself a historian, uh, although I do do some sort of historical work in mm-hmm. the stuff that I do. Uh, I am not an archaeologist, but like you, I like to pay attention to what archaeology is doing. Mm-hmm. Um. The, the reality is, from my experience of archaeology, is digging in the dirt seldom gives you enough information to actually create a narrative by itself. Yeah, you got to have a whole lot of other context. Yeah, there has to be some more context to it. So, in a di- yes, it is very important, and I'm really glad that archaeology is moving in the direction of... Uh, may- maybe has moved? I don't know. I'm not an archaeologist. Um into the aggression of letting the things that we are studying tell us the story and not tell it the story, right? Yeah. Yep. Um, uh, for me, my my connection is most often, uh, most directly, uh, mid east, uh, n- near east uh, archaeology, right? So mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Israel, uh, what was called back in the day biblical archaeology, uh, it's not called that anymore because. 
for because it's not biblical archaeology. It's archaeology in the era of the time frame of the Bible, perhaps. Yes. Um, and we spent too much time talking about what too many scholars went there and says, I'm going to prove that the exodus yes. happened, or I'm going yes. to prove that the conquest occurred, um, rather than looking at the data. Um, but going in without any um, structure, there's often inconclusive data that's really hard to process without something else. So having a question or a series of questions that helps frame things while at the same time having the capacity to allow your own questions to be reframed and changed um, is necessary. Yep. Yeah, when it, com- when it comes to that kind of deep questioning, um, it's related to another thing that I am, which is, uh, I have a habit to describe it, technically a data scientist, but not quite the same way that many people think about data scientists. Anyway, um, data can tell you anything. It can tell you anything. You, you, you can find data to support any idea that you have in your brain. You want to have data that the sky is green, you can find it. Um, you want to have data that, uh, that trees actually grow down, not up, you can find it. Um, like data itself will tell you anything you want to hear. That's why when big data was starting to become a thing several years ago, I was rolling my eyes hard because they kept framing because the motivation for a lot of those big data companies was that they didn't really know where they were going with it. They just wanted to sound exciting so that they can continue to get venture capital. And hopefully by that point, after spending their venture capital, they will have acquired enough of something. They didn't know what, but enough of something that was valuable to some other company so that they could get bought out. Like that was the whole game plan. And so, and so the the action of engagement within the group of people that were going to be nominally consuming their services was always fluff pieces. It was always like, we're going to be able to tell you how blah de blah is happening in ways that you were never knowing possible because we're going to monitor everything. And it's like when you're monitoring everything, you've got static. So back to your point. When, when you're approaching something with absolutely no idea about what you're going to do with it, it, it you're going to have a bad time. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're going to find things, but you're going to have no context for the things. And in lacking the context, you're going to have a very difficult time interpreting what you're seeing. And while it is very true that uh, it is highly enjoyable to approach a particular academic problem, with an idea in your head and you start getting into the evidence and the evidence doesn't support the idea. And you're like, what the heck am I looking at here? And then somebody else comes in and says, well, what about like this? And maybe that somebody else is inside your own head, but you know what I'm saying? That different perspective walks in yep. and then bang, everything starts to click. And th- that feeling is amazing. It's like, you're yes. right. This is that, that's this, this is this other thing. I can see it now. It's so cool. And so like, yeah, what you know, bring it back to the show because this is a Stargate podcast. <laughs> Stargate, 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 Stargate. Um, uh, you're right. Uh, I was I was interpreting that phrase to be in these pages contain the answers to all of our problems, and I do think it was kind of set up like that in the story as written. But your meta point is actually more profound. Like in this piece of evidence we have evidence yeah sure yeah it's it's a book with a bunch of knowledge that's not the cool thing the cool thing is that it exists at all 
it's mm-hmm. like it's like finding bring it back to archaeology it's like finding a tradeware piece in the middle of england that originated from the north of africa and you know because of other context that it came in like the first century or maybe before like pre-romanization like like you can sit there and you can go whoa what this means yeah sure it's a piece of pot whatever but what it means is that people who lived here were in contact with people who lived all the way over there yeah and once upon a time we used to think that didn't happen once upon a time we used to think that all these little groups were all by themselves completely unaware of the ideas and, and accomplishments of other areas And this is something that's been exciting over the past maybe 30 years or so is that we've increasingly learned that our world has been connected in ways that we thought was impossible. And it's been connected like this for a very long time. Yeah. That's cool. I love that. One of the shows that that, uh, Julie and I both really enjoy watching is Expedition Unknown. And if you are Mm -hmm. are an archaeology guy, uh, it's a worthwhile show to watch uh, because Josh Gates, the host, goes out and... Um, you know, looks for the lost treasure of so and so. Looks for the the lost amber room, um, and you know things like uh, looking for Suleiman's heart was one an episode that we watched recently. That's an older episode that we've been mm-hmm. rewatching. You know, all of these things. Uh, most of the time, he doesn't find what he's looking for. Right, but he finds other things that are fascinating and expands the story in some cases saying well the legend that we have is not accurate right or you know um it can be fun but it's not accurate mm-hmm. and other times like in the in the case of Suleiman's heart uh he literally does find the place where this was supposed to be buried i mean nice. i mean it, it it's it's a heart right i mean it, that would have decomposed a long, long time ago. Yes, but but what they were looking for is actually what they find. Yes, um, and but that's just this type of thing of going out there and exploring and looking for stuff, and then being able to uh, let the narrative of what you're actually seeing influence what it is that you are looking for, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which is exciting. I agree. Um, and this episode does some of that, at least touches on that for me in, in a lot of ways, which is just which exciting. Is, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, um, Brent. Yeah. Earlier, you said you didn't know for sure how many chevrons you were going to give this episode this time around. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. now you have to pin yourself down. <laughs> now I got to come up with a number and stick yes. with it. Yep. This... Um, I had fun, but did I have a lot of fun? See, here's the thing is that I'm really glad that our original project is taking these episodes and I uh, progressively one after the other and examining them, examining them in uh, like in situ where, where they are happening. Because right. at that time I didn't have any of this meta knowledge, right? At the time that I watched, I didn't have any of the meta knowledge. Now I've got all the meta knowledge, but I'm watching it again going, oh, but this episode really didn't tell me much about that meta knowledge at all. Um, And so it's a little it's almost a little unsatisfying because it's like, oh, I kind of forgot that I didn't get the crunch that satisfies in this episode. (laughs) That comes later. (laughs) And so and so I'm kind of split. Like on one hand, boy, is it a charming episode. Uh, It's very fun to watch the the characters in the early stages of their development. Uh, I think that the story was a good story, although it was tropey in some ways. 
and uh, it did land with you know such a happily ever after that we we have everybody coming. Together. By the way, I completely forgot to mention how excellent of a job the actor that portrayed Catherine Langford did on this mm. one. Like, mm-hmm. just so good in conveying all the different emotions. Like, it was good. It was very good. So, um, and then it did create another version of a really good conversation, though it was almost almost not Stargate related. <laughs> we. Started to go adrift there. I'm going to give this one a five out of seven. A five. Um, I, I think that another person could give it a six and be justified because there really is a lot of stuff that later matters a lot. Um, and I think a person might even be willing to give it a seven because in the framework of its own time, plus the meta knowledge, it does fine. There wasn't really anything seriously wrong with it at all. In fact, there was quite a few charming moments. But for me right now, five out of seven. Yep. Um. Gosh, I've I've had a hard time with this episode at this mm-hmm. point in time. Um, it you you right there at the end, you kind of described exactly where I am, and I'm trying to figure out where I fall. Yes. Um, <laughs> because so this episode was clearly a good episode in its time. Yes, it's a good episode in its situation, right within the context of coming before after whatever it was coming after and before yep. whatever it's coming before. Yep. Um, it's good acting, right? The acting is good. The the, the guest actors do a tremendous job yes. with this, right? And and then they give the space for our main actors to continue to develop who they are, which is awesome. Um, it also kicks off a, a while we don't get all of the crunchiness here. Um, you can't really expect to get all of the crunchy in the first 11 episodes yes. of the first season. Yes. Uh, especially in 1997. Uh, that's not how they did TV then. Uh, right. They, they were all about teasing just enough, just enough, and then and then there's a hit. And this does that. It does that well, and it created a great conversation between you. And, mm-hmm. and, and I don't... You know what? I, I'm, I'm going to actually still give this a seven. Nice. I, I, I'm going to give okay. it a seven. Uh, there are some inconsistencies with it, but they don't really affect things. Yeah. And it tells a story. And here again, uh, I'm pretty certain that the first time we watched this, we had a great conversation. Yeah. And we watched it a second time, four years later, and we have a great conversation. <laughs> and yep. anything that is a springboard <laughs> to having a great conversation makes me feel all warm inside, yes. right? It makes me feel good. Yeah, me too. All right, so I'll go seven. <laughs> Very nice. Very nice. Uh, wow. Okay. Uh, Torment of Tantalus. Um, yeah. Your quote, it's tantalizing. It's tantalizing. <laughs> How original. Uh, at that point in time, you were really starting to get excited about the series. Uh-huh, uh, uh-huh. And since this is an ep- this episode is a good one, uh, you were interest. You said the camera work was interesting, mm-hmm. uh, though it didn't make sense in some of the parts of the story. That makes sense. Good character moments. The show is starting to uh, be in a groove. It's starting to get into a groove, and it lays good groundwork for the future. Those are your yeah. comments. Okay. Uh, you yes. said five out of seven. Look at that. <laughs> uh, I said a few funny quips. Uh, plenty of plot holes, jumper cables in the 300 yeah. foot cable. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Google tech can't hurt the ancient knowledge devices, etc. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, good job developing the humanity of all the characters, etc., etc. Uh, I gave it five and a half chevron. Okay. 
So feeling more I, generous now. Yeah, I was. Um, yep. Uh, I, you know, I, I felt I wanted to go more than five, and I wasn't certain where I wanted to end up. And uh, I definitely, I definitely padded this seven uh, with the sure. wonderful conversation. But hey, but that's our rule. That's, that's, that's our will, show. It's our show, and I will stand right. by that seven still yep. right now. Very so, good. Um, uh, we like I said, we didn't didn't get any other listener comments about this episode, so this is your chance to tell us what you think about this episode yeah. and the rewatch. Uh, email us at walkingthroughthestargate at gmail.com. Of course, follow us on Twitter. Talk to us there or on the Facebooks, the Walking Through the Stargate Facebook page and group and all that stuff. Also, you can go to Discord and have a great conversation with us all there. That's uh, right. If you don't know how to get onto Discord and you want to, go to wtts.space. That's our website. Space. Or yep. walkingthroughthestargate.com. Yep. Uh, and you will get all that stuff there. Um, thank you again for our Patreon supporters. Uh, you who are listening to this in the future, if you want to be a Patreon supporter, you can do that by going to patreon.com slash walking through the Stargate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and with all of that, I say I'm Zach. And I'm Brent. And this has been Stargate Second Chances, a Walking Through the Stargate podcast. See you next time. Bye. Bye.